You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore. Our podcast team is taking a break this week for the holidays, but don't fret, we'll be back next week with all new episodes of our show. In the meantime, this week we're revisiting some of our favorite interviews from 2016. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Back in May, we spoke with author and historian Abby Smith-Rumsey about her latest book, When We Are No More, How Digital Memory Shapes Our Future. The book explores human memory from prehistory to the present, from pictures painted on cave walls to now, with all the world's knowledge available in an instant on our mobile devices. Abby Smith-Rumsey spoke to me from her home in San Francisco. Well, I'm a historian, and um, I'm writing about why it is that at times like this, when we're sort of creating more and more information, 
it's harder for us to keep that information, to create a really robust historical record, both for present and future generations. I talk about some of the technical issues about why digital information is harder to maintain, to capture robust samples of, and to maintain for long periods of time. But I also talk about the risk that that poses if we don't solve the problem. And it's not just a risk to present generations, um, but also to future generations to lose the past. And I talk about the value of the past. I think for many people in the technology sector, it's a given that today's information is important. But I think that there's also sometimes an unexamined assumption that because we have a lot of information now, that most of the information that we create supersedes information from the past, that in fact the past becomes less relevant the faster we move into this future that we talk about. What are what are some of the historical examples of things that were, uh, you know, it turned out to, to, I know you mentioned a few in the book, things that turned out to have great value long after, you know, they'd been sitting on a shelf for a long time? You know, one of my favorite examples is um, of the maritime logbooks that mariners used to keep. Um, I imagine they still do, but the um, the British Naval Museum, in fact, has a vast collection of mariners' logbooks from its years on the high seas as the empire that ruled the waves. And the museum, the, each one is a logbook written by hand on board ship that has in detail and in very particular hand, and not everybody can read this hand without training, handwriting, I mean, without training. It records everything that happens on the, in the course of a day on a ship, and it reads actually like a very boring almanac about the birds that are seen and the temperatures and the size of the waves and so on and so forth. Um, and this information, if you read page by page, really doesn't accumulate into something significant. But um, the, um, the museum, the archive, has scanned these logbooks with a very interesting technology that allows a machine to read individual handwriting. So they've been able to scan this material, and they've created a database. And now scientists are studying oceans and atmospheres and changes in weather and flora and fauna and things like that that are so important to climate science. They're now looking at these centuries of data about ocean conditions. And, you know, it's, it's amazing the kind of information they can get out of it, historical information. So these old, um, these old logbooks are kind of like this, this goldmine of information for um, the study of climate change. And incidentally, nobody in the 19th, 18th or 19th century thought that logbooks would be valuable to study climate change because nobody at that time imagined that human beings were changing the climate of the globe. So that's an example of the kinds of information that lurks there that could solve problems that people are not even aware will be developing over time. What about encryption? I mean, I, I think about, you know, people in the past, someone had something that they wanted to protect or keep out of prying eyes. You know, they could, they could lock it in a safe or, or, or a, you know, a lock, lock a filing cabinet or something like that. And, and so, you know, that would keep people out. But if someone, if that person passed away or that company, you know, was no longer in existence, you know, over time, someone could figure out a way to unlock that safe or pry open that filing cabinet. But I, I'm not sure that's the case with encryption, where where are we as a result of putting such uh, such technologically advanced locks on so much of our data? Um, what's the ramifications of that? 
Well, I, I can tell you that you don't even need to encrypt data to make it inaccessible over time. I mean, I wrote um, several what are now, to me, very important documents on obsolete hardware and software um, in the 1980s. It's totally irretrievable. I mean, even a digital archaeologist wouldn't be able to resurrect my Xyrite files, probably. But that aside, I, you know, I, I don't know any more than anybody else um, what the effect of all this encryption will be over the long term. I do know that in the short term, it has the immediate effect of privileging, creating, you know, some different categories of information and access to information without truly understanding the import of that information. And I'm not talking about national security information. Sometimes it's just commercial information. and Sometimes it's simple things as weather data. Um, do you know it was very hard for the U.S. government to get information about Hurricane Katrina in real time because they were using commercial satellites. And the commercial companies, you know, were not making that stuff available to the government because actually they were commercial assets. The government had to go in and, and, you know, go to court to get information to this, get this kind of information. So I think we need to think very carefully about both what the categories of encryption that we allow and then how do we back out of that. And I know that sounds much simpler than it really is. Um, and I think um, the case of trying to get into the, into the iPhone of the people in San Bernardino who perpetrated that terrorist act is a good example of just how complicated these policies can be. What about, you know, I think about um, Thomas Jefferson famously, uh, uh, you know, burning the letters between him, him and his wife. Um, you know, what about our, the right to privacy and the right to be forgotten? Well, I do think that everyone has a right to control um, information about themselves, which they consider private, and control it from circulating freely. I think that was true before the Internet, and I think it's true now. What is difficult is that what, is, what constitutes a private person has really changed. And I think that that's still something that um, is a work in progress. You know, at least in the U.S., we have fairly good definitions of what constitutes a public person and a private person, and which parts of a person's life are public and private, and that's how lawsuits about libel and that kind of thing um, are adjudicated. But now that everything that circulates on the web is, in some strange technical sense, published, and people actually put things on Instagram or YouTube in order to expose things about themselves, um, publicly, even if they don't know what that means, it creates a lot of difficult issues. I think we need to revisit the issues of what of what constitutes privacy and and a private versus public act. There are ways that savvy digital natives, or I should say, people who are digitally literate, understand how to control the the scope of people who can view the things that they send on the internet or through email. And I think one of the most important things in education now is to educate digital natives about what can and cannot circulate freely, what should and should not circulate freely, and to teach each individual with any smartphone that they need to start becoming aware of their digital self versus their private self. But that's, that's easy to say and hard to do in a generation which is, in a way, kind of inventing things as they go along. Um, the right to privacy is, a, is, I think, at this point at least, best understood um, 
in the old-fashioned sense, a, a public person, a public personality, shouldn't have the right to um, to actually get rid of websites that they had posted if they've changed their opinion about how things are now. And now this certainly happened when I was working on Capitol Hill at the Library of Congress. People would tell me about members of Congress who would ask the Library of Congress or Thomas, their website, to take down their old websites if they had changed their views about a certain thing. And you can't do that with a public record. Um, and representatives are public figures. But I think the question of the right to, um, the right to be forgotten, um, in some cases, in most cases, I think we should err on the side of caution and let people take things down um, until we have a better sense of the ramifications of all that information online. So speaking of the people in our audience, it's their jobs to protect data, you know, from being lost, from bad guys. You know, what, what do you think their role is uh, in all of this? Well, I think their role is incredibly valuable. Um, just having taken on this very complicated technical task of trying to secure data into the future when we know that the world in which they are operating technically hardware software etc is always changing and furthermore that as i at least imagine it um that the policies that they need to adhere to over time and they need to be very strict about these policies because the the stakes are so high that in fact those policies themselves are changing um and that policies that may have been operative 10 years ago turn out not to be um, the best, and so they, they change that. And I think it takes a certain amount of what you might call intestinal fortitude <laughs> to be able to withstand having to meet really exacting standards at the same time that you know that things are shifting. Um, but I also, um, I've often thought about how even though I think about this issue a lot as a historian, and just as a human being, that the actual technical work of what they do, what they do when they go to work every day and how they spend their time, is quite opaque to me. I don't understand what they do and I don't, in other words, I don't truly value um, what they do. Um, and yet I know that somehow there has to be a certain lack of transparency if they're dealing with security. Um, all I can say is that uh, that it that I, I hope that they, in their capacity as private citizens, not in their work capacity, um, actually join the chorus of, of citizens who are demanding that our politicians pay a lot more attention to settling some of these issues uh, around digital security, about protecting national security and privacy at the same time. This is a dynamic kind of balance that needs to be in place. But it needs to be negotiated and renegotiated constantly. And somehow in this political cycle, we seem to be talking about everything but these important issues. I do know, I've heard from many people in the scientific and, and, and social science worlds, that many of the things that they would most like to work on that, that would have the biggest benefit for mankind in the short term as well as the long term are hampered because there are no effective policy, data policy and access policies to some of these things, medical data, for example. So it's really difficult um, that we operate and cybersecurity people in particular operate in a world in which these policies are not dealt with forthrightly. That's author and historian Abby Smith-Rumsey. Her book is When We Are No More, How Digital Memory Shapes Our Future.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.